Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, I am absolutely knackered. I think I'm getting Zoom poisoning uh, from the amount of time I spend looking at people's faces uh, on Zoom. At least I've managed, I've learned how to turn my own off without turning it off on other people's screens, which is definitely a top tip for reducing the pain of being on Zoom. But anyway, I was talking to some people at the World Bank yesterday who say that they are now doing a digital detox for the next four days and not looking at, not going online. It sounds like an extremely good idea. Anyway, I shall try and stumble blearily through uh, this week's posts. Uh, bear with me. First up was uh, links I liked, uh, the, uh, the usual Monday post. Uh, we announced the uh, winner of the Corona cartoon competition, which was Last Supper on Zoom. I'm not going to mention Zoom again, but that's, that was the winner. Uh, have a look on the blog if you want to see the, uh, the others. Um, also, a couple of new podcasts. I've started one with um, at the LSE on um, Zooming in. Oh, my God, I just did it again. Never mind. Zooming in with International Development Department, where I basically thought it was time to find out what my colleagues actually do with, uh, in terms of research. So I'm working my way around the department, doing 15-minute podcasts with each member of staff, just to ask them what they do and how it links to COVID, if it does. And that's been kind of fun. And we're putting them up on the ID uh, blog um, and podcast channel, if you're interested. The other one is, uh, I'll come to in a minute, but it's a, a new uh, collaborative podcast between From Poverty to Power and Oxfam um, uh, called Power in the Pandemic. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The only other sort of thing to draw attention to in links I liked was this emerging disagreement over what is going on in Africa. Um, so there are both dire prophecies of imminent disaster in terms of COVID in Africa, um, with you know millions dying because of lack of health systems, lack of social distancing. Then there's the, the latest one is a kind of slow onset disaster in Africa where the numbers may not be high compared to Europe, say, this year, but it'll stick around for years later because African health systems are in less position to get rid of it and to really shut it down. But there's another one which is saying this is all just a massive colonial mistake and that people aren't understanding that Africa has different social systems, different government uh, approaches and more experience in dealing with pandemics like Ebola. So actually, you guys are just not understanding what's going on here. For me, it's watch this space because they all sound terribly plausible. So we will see. But I think it is true that the numbers are not what people predicted. And that is very interesting and something we need to both celebrate and keep an eye on. The next two days, we got stuck into corruption because COVID is leading to a massive upsurge in spending at high speed, lots of safeguards being removed. And it, you would be, you know, it would be fair enough to bet your house that some of that money will be diverted snouts will be in a variety of troughs around procurement and easy money. So what do we do about that? Uh, given that the, the need is urgent and that we've got to get money out to organisations, to governments, you know, um, how to minimise the risk of corruption. And I had two really contrasting approaches, which I think are really you know, um, thought-provoking. So first up was Mushtaq Khan and Pallavi Roy from SOAS, uh, the University, University in London, um, and they were saying, look, you've got to get the money out fast. You, know, you can't take time to design lots of safeguards and you know, lots of careful schemes to avoid any money being wasted. That's not negotiable. You've got to get the money out fast. So what they're saying is you've got to think about it as a system. And basically what you're doing is you have to create 
multiple channels and, and put money through multiple channels so that some of the money gets through even if other bits get diverted. So it's kind of building in redundancy um, to a system rather than trying to optimize for, for anti-corruption. I think that makes absolute sense in terms of um, thinking about it as a system, in terms of respecting the need for speed. But it does also implicitly accept that some of that money will be diverted, and that is a real problem for the big donors. The next day, we had the International Budget Partnership. Sally Talbot uh, wrote a post, and that was a completely different thing, saying, no, you know, what we need here is, um, as she put it, uh, a, a quote from the IMF, do whatever it takes but keep the receipts and then make sure that enough people can see the receipts. So IBP, International Budget Partnership, is definitely arguing that we cut this, this you know, in a way, a different approach to uh, to Khan and Roy and say, no, we can't just accept that lots of the money will, 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 will have to uh, be lost. Um, we've got to actually... Uh, try and crack it down. She drew a lot on the latest version of the Open Budget Survey, which IBP put out every year. And she says, you know, we must insist, we being donors or civil society or whoever, should insist on full transparency, on governments engaging with the public, on strengthening oversight and on open budgets in the end, you know, having an open budget approach, which is what IBP is all about. So this is, yeah, one is saying no, Speed is of the essence. You've got to accept second best. And the other one is saying go for first best. So I suppose you know the compromise is do IBP approach where you can, where the government is actually willing to do that, um, where you can't use the SOAS approach. But I'd be interested to see what other uh, things have been written on anti-corruption and COVID because it's clearly going to be a massive issue and it's going to become bigger as time goes on, no question. The next day we had Maria Faciolince, who's my partner in um, uh, From Poverty to Power, my colleague. And uh, she has been absolutely galvanizing the blog with uh, a project we call Power Shifts, where she is sourcing really good content material from authors in the global south. She has now collaborated with the Oxfam podcast to set up a thing they call Power in the Pandemic. And they're looking for seeds of transformation emerging from the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and this is going to be an ongoing thing. There's going to be, you know, a, a podcast or two every week. So if this is your thing, sign up to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. The first episode was Where is the Power in the Pandemic? And uh, it's readings from authors writing about this. So we had, um, I think it was Maria reading Arundhati Roy's fantastic piece in the Financial Times a few weeks ago, arguing that the, the pandemic is a portal into a new future and that new future could be good, could be bad. So sort of classic critical juncture thinking. We had David Mwambari, uh, a, um, a lecturer at King's College in London, reading his own post uh, on saying that this could be a catalyst for decolonization. And then we had some readings from a really fantastic journal called Interface Journal, which is pulling together examples of social movement activity and action around COVID-19 to show that it's not all top down. It's not all governments. It's not all white saviour. Quite the contrary. This is what's going on on the, uh, the grassroots. So the very promising first episode. I'll keep you posted as new ones come out. Then the final piece of the week I was very happy was from some LSE students. So LSE students do this thing called a consultancy where um, organisations, you know, uh, aid agencies, uh, companies bid for their time. 
and it's basically a free consultancy, but it's a very rigorous, well-constructed consultancy where a group of LSE students select from, there's a beauty contest, they look at all the pitches from these organisations, they say, no, we want to do that one. They then go in and, and, and spend months and months working on a consultancy on this particular issue. And a group of LSE students, Chiara Jackman, uh, Natalie Schwartz, Hannah Toda and uh, Anjuman Tanya, um, did a consultancy for Oxfam on um, informal social protection. So social protection, when people talk about that, they usually mean cash transfer schemes, they mean uh, pensions, think ways that the government does you know, to give out money to people uh, who are in need. But there is this entirely separate universe of informal social protection, which is almost like kind of dark matter in physics. You know, the sort of stuff that no one can see, but is out there in the universe. And this dark matter is things like remittances, which are four times the volume of aid going from migrant workers in richer countries to their families and friends in poorer countries. Um, mutual assistance groups, lots and lots of people just get together, you know, um, without any guidance from aid agencies or governments or anyone else, and all put a bit of money into the pot so that they can support each other when someone falls on hard times or someone has a, you know, wants to buy a cow or do up the house or pay their school fees or whatever. So these are just kind of mutual assistance and savings groups, loads of different ways of informally protecting each other. So what um, the students, Kiara, Natalie, Hannah and Anjuman said was... Um, Let's look at this informal social protection through the lens of COVID. Um, how do COVID responses affect informal social protection? For example, you know, we need to know that, that, that because so many people depend on ISP, on informal social protection, it has to be on the radar of people who are thinking about COVID and programming and spending around COVID. So, for example, what does social distancing do to all these mutual aid groups? Can they go online or do they just stop meeting and stop supporting each other? Um, how can COVID responses build on the informal social protection networks that are all there? They're essentially a form of social capital, you know, pre-existing networks that could you know, disseminate the messages around um, hand washing and, and social distancing, that could be an easy channel where people already trust each other to channel resources. Um, but also, we know that people who have been dependent on remittances are facing a very hard time right now because remittances are uh, estimated to drop by about $100 billion a year um, over the next year, according to the World Bank. So if you can identify heavily remittance-dependent families, you can be pretty sure that they are in a real um, difficult situation right now. So the response to COVID should actually think about remittance-dependent families as, and have those on their radar as likely um, you know, priorities. So I thought absolutely great. When the LSE consultancies work, I think they're absolutely fantastic. People put, yeah, the students put in a huge amount of brain power and they have very good brains um, uh, and a lot of time and they're a real benefit to um, the hard-pressed, harassed, ever-busy organisations that managed to get these this basically pro bono free free brain power. Um, and I'm hoping that Oxfam will use, I'm pretty sure they will, will use this um, these insights onto informal social protection to improve their COVID response. So on that note, have a great weekend. Detox if you can, but only after you've listened to this, obviously. Um, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.